Two U.S. warships sailing through the Taiwan Strait. Overhead, more Chinese fighter jets are crossing the unofficial divide between China and Taiwan. More joint military drills, this time between Russia and China. With those kicking off, the U.S. and Japan are launching their own field training. Flooding and heavy rain coming to wash away China's extended heat wave. But the perfect storm of conditions presents an even bigger threat. Protests breaking out in China. Internet videos show residents venting against local lockdown measures and mass virus testing. And a human rights documentary going to the Oscars. It's nominated for Best International Film, the first submission of its kind. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Two U.S. Navy warships sailed through international waters in the Taiwan Strait on Sunday, the first since U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Beijing claims the South Old Taiwan as its own territory and takes issue with any actions that suggest support for the island as separate from mainland China. The U.S. Navy confirmed the Chancellorsville and the Antietam cruisers were carrying out the ongoing operation. A White House official called the ship's passage through the Taiwan Strait as very consistent with Washington's One China policy and efforts to maintain a free and open Indo-Pacific. A day after the vessels passed through the strait, China's foreign ministry urged the U.S. to avoid being what it called a troublemaker. At the same time, Taiwan says China is still carrying out military activities in the water surrounding it. The island's defense ministry detected 23 Chinese aircraft operating around Taiwan on Sunday. That's including seven that cross the median line of the Taiwan Strait. That's the dividing line that acts as an unofficial barrier between the two sides. As of Monday, the number of Chinese fighter jets that has crossed the median line rose to 12. Chinese army units have arrived in Russia's far east ahead of joint military drills. The military exercises are dubbed the Vostok 2022. They're set to begin Thursday, September 1st, and will span one week. Participants include Russia, China, India, Belarus, and Tajikistan. Earlier this month, China's defense ministry said its participation was part of its cooperation agreement with Russia. Last month, Moscow announced plans to hold the Vostok exercises. It noted that some foreign forces would join in, but didn't name them. Over in the Indo-Pacific, another drill is heating up. Known as the Japan Orient Shield 22, the exercise kicked off its opening ceremony on Saturday. It's the largest field training exercise between the U.S. Army and Japan's Ground Self-Defense Force. The exercises will be held throughout Japan. China has ramped up military activities since U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last month. Beijing sent 12 fighter jets across the Taiwan Strait median line on Monday. That line marks an unofficial barrier between China and Taiwan. China's months-long heat wave may be coming to an end, but what follows may not be the relief residents are hoping for. China's Central Weather Observatory issued a heavy rain warning Monday. It covers areas in southern and central China and could mean flood conditions are on their way. The advisory also includes Chongqing City, which was plagued by severe drought over the last two months. This as high temperatures are still scorching most of southeastern China. 
The intense heat wave has been roasting the country's Yangtze River Basin for more than two months. It's already set a record for its duration and geographic scope. People across nearly 530,000 square miles are suffering under temperatures exceeding 104 degrees Fahrenheit. That's an area as large as Texas, Colorado and California combined. The highest recorded temperatures there soar to 113 degrees Fahrenheit. Resulting drought conditions have also hit the region's hydropower generation. To make up for the lacking electricity, 67 coal-driven power plants have had to return to operation. A number of forest fires have also been sparked. This year, August rainfall is down 60 percent compared to the seasonal norm, putting the fall harvest in jeopardy. On top of that, more elderly people have been admitted to hospitals, suffering from heat-related health issues. But as the seasons begin to shift, parts of China may be in for a different kind of issue. On Monday, flooding was caught on camera in the southwestern city of Chengdu. Torrential rain in the mountainous area also caused mudslides. But it's the combination of drought then rain that poses the biggest danger. With crops and other vegetation shriveling under intense heat, plant roots no longer hold soil in place. That means when the heavy rains do arrive, the loose soil will be more prone to getting washed away. Reports from China's southwestern Chongqing say residents are protesting local lockdown orders. In a video circulating online, locals are seen taking to the streets, shouting, remove the lockdown. Security guards were deployed to the site. The video's caption said more than a thousand residents joined the Saturday protest. By the end, local authorities removed the community's lockdown mandate. A similar demonstration appeared in the city of Shenzhen. There, crowds of people were heard shouting, Stop the lockdown. The protest not only took issue with lockdown requirements, but also to China's wide-reaching virus test mandates. In another video from last week, a large crowd in Chongqing City came out to oppose mass virus testing. NTD held its seventh traditional Chinese martial arts competition in New York on Sunday. There, dozens of participants from around the world showcase their kung fu skills. But the gold medals have not yet been awarded. Let's take a look. The seventh NTD International Traditional Chinese Martial Arts Competition took place over three days and concluded on Sunday in Middletown, New York. 48 competitors from around the world took part in seven categories. One of them is a father and son duo from Colombia, who both won silver. We wake up at 3 in the morning and begin practicing martial arts from 4 a.m. to 7 a.m. It's been this way pretty much since I was born. We pay a lot of attention to our spiritual cultivation. That's why we've been able to do martial arts well, because our spirit and body are one. Another silver medalist is Lin Chi Xun from Taiwan, who participated in the Southern Fist category. A competition like this one makes us confident that we are traveling in the right direction and that we are willing to keep trying our best and pass on this martial art. The competition aims to revive traditional Chinese martial arts and display their true value to the world. Chris Chappell, the host of China Uncensored, also participated as a contestant. 
a fan of traditional Chinese culture. He's been learning martial arts since a young age. Chapel won the Award of Excellence this year and shared the biggest lesson he learned about traditional martial arts. The biggest lesson I've learned from particularly Chinese style, traditional martial arts, is uh, they have a saying in ancient China, you know, the soft overcomes the hard. I think you've probably heard of it. Um, and I think a lot of times in life we learn that like, you know, anger or rage, those are, you know, a type of strength that we can use to like get through hard times. But it's a very dangerous emotion because then that can turn on people closest to you, family, friends. But in Chinese martial arts, you learn that strength can come through tranquility and peace. And that's a much bigger, broader form of strength. The competition has four award categories, gold, silver, bronze, and excellent. This year, 25 competitors won bronze, nine won silver, but no one qualified for gold. We've had this kind of situation in every past competition. If the folks don't meet the standard for gold, we leave the medals unawarded. This would also encourage the folks. If they come back in future competitions and show improvement, that spot is open for them. The judge says it's unfortunate that no one qualified for gold this year, but that he hopes they will be able to hand out the golden award next year. The traditional Chinese martial arts competition is a part of a series of international culture and arts events organized by NTD. The award-winning animated documentary Eternal Spring is going to the Oscars. Canada selected the film as its submission for Best International Film last week. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg spoke with the film's director. Eternal Spring will be the first ever animated, documentary and Mandarin language entry from Canada for an Academy Award. It tells the story of a group of Falun Gong practitioners in China who tapped into a state TV signal in 2002. Their goal was to set the record straight by countering the Chinese Communist regime's narrative and misinformation about the practice. We did our best to try and capture that spirit of hope that they carried and, and we hope that Chinese people can be inspired by that. Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, is a spiritual practice that has been heavily persecuted in China since 1999. The Chinese Communist Party has run massive propaganda campaigns to turn Chinese citizens against Falun Gong. The regime has also committed horrendous human rights abuses that include forced labor, torture and live organ harvesting. During production of Eternal Spring, the Chinese Communist regime began applying pressure on filmmaker Jason Loftus and his family. My wife's family, who is in Northeast China, was contacted by the Public Security Bureau there and uh, given threats, you know, warned that they knew what we were up to overseas. Loftus was working on a video game for Tencent, a Chinese video game publisher with ties to the Chinese regime. The company suddenly dropped distribution of the game because of his work on the film. He says despite any consequences, it didn't feel right to look the other way when so many people in China had already sacrificed so much to get their story out. If we all just kind of say, well, you know, um, someone else will handle this story, it's difficult, then what ends up happening is that no one tackles those stories. And, uh, and I think really important stories that we need to know about um, uh, just don't get told. The film has resonated with audiences and juries at several film festivals and has won multiple awards already. There's some challenges perhaps in tackling stories like this, but I think there's many, many people who feel that, uh, you know, it's important, especially at this time that we, um, we shine a light on these issues in China. The film's internationally renowned illustrator Da Xiong has worked on comics like Star Wars and DC's Justice League. He escaped China after being imprisoned and tortured for his beliefs. He was part of the group involved in tapping into state TV. 
so that you see the, the role that art plays in his own process of facing some trauma and facing his nostalgia and his longing for his hometown. And we see how art can help us to reach a, a new understanding about events and how it can help us to gain some type of catharsis. Loftus says regardless of the film's success in North America, it's most important to him if people in China can see it as well. There's a lot of people who are in China who made great sacrifices to be able to tell this story because they cared not just about their own individual situations, but about all of the, the Chinese people who are living under the same circumstances, and they wish for a better future. The film's theatrical release in Canada will be on September 23rd. It hits theaters in the U.S. on October 14th. The 2023 Oscars take place on March 12th. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, China has developed a quantum computer. Such a device will be able to wipe out any kind of encryption that currently exists today in order to extract whatever kind of data, classified or otherwise, that it wants to get its access to. But what does that really mean? And is your digital footprint still safe? We sat down with Arthur Herman, the director of the Quantum Alliance Initiative for Answers. Find out what he has to say and more after the break here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A quantum computer is a tool that can break any code, and China's developed one. But is it advanced enough to fulfill Beijing's ultimate goal? We sat down with Arthur Herman, the director of Quantum Alliance Initiative, to find out more on what that means for Americans and U.S. defenses. Arthur, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. It's always a pleasure. So recently out of China, Baidu announced they have developed a quantum computer. So how significant is this? How worried should we be? This quantum computer that they're touting has only 10 qubits. And that's a pretty small number. I mean, compare that with, for example, uh, Google, Google Sycamore quantum computer has 60 plus qubits. Uh, IBM's is upwards of 70 qubits, and IBM is thinking now that they'll be able to get themselves into the 4,000 qubit range by 2025. So this is a pretty small scale effort by comparison. And so on that note, Arthur, when the quantum race is like one and these computers are on the scene, how is yeah. that going to change our everyday life, or will it? Well, it's going to change it, I think, in, uh, in, in one hugely important aspect, which is the one that has our federal government very much worried, that has cybersecurity experts increasingly worrying about the problem that I have been talking about at Hudson Institute at the Quantum Alliance Initiative for a number of years now. And now people are beginning to realize that what seemed to be a, a, a threat lying far off on the horizon is actually a lot closer than we had thought. And that is, is that when you get to a quantum computer of that size and caliber, let's say in the 4,000 to 10,000 qubits, still, it's a very large number, we're still a long way away from that right now. When you get to a quantum computer of that size and magnitude, it will be easy for such a device to decrypt 
all of the existing public encryption systems. In other words, such a device will be able to wipe out any kind of encryption that currently exists today in order to extract whatever kind of data, classified or otherwise, that it wants to get its access to. So what you're talking about is the ultimate weapon in cyber warfare that could come as a result of our, the, the race that we're engaged in with China uh, towards a quantum computer. Now, the fact that we have a lead doesn't necessarily mean we're going to win. And it's like the hare and the tortoise race, right? We're like the hare. We've sprinted ahead thanks to companies like IBM and Google and Rigetti and others. Uh, but the Chinese are moving ahead tortoise-like slowly but surely. And they're thinking about, they're thinking about an overall quantum strategy because they realize how important and how significant it will be to have such a code-breaking quantum computer in the future. So now we face two problems. Number one, how soon, what's the timeline like to be get to that large-scale quantum computer? That's the first issue, and that's a crucial one. The second one is how do we protect ourselves against such a threat? And that's the one that the federal government now, the second question is the one the federal government is now beginning to take very seriously and encouraging and requiring more and more government agencies in, in our federal government to begin to take steps to protect themselves from such an attack, to install quantum safe cybersecurity and cryptography in their systems and to protect their data and networks. And it's also, too, realizing that, um, that this is, that the, that the race to achieve such a landmark breakthrough in quantum computing is one that we did take very, very seriously. That this is potentially as important as the Manhattan, Manhattan Project to uh, create the atomic bomb, uh, potentially as important as the race to create the hydrogen bomb because of the enormous catastrophic effect if the Chinese were to have a code-breaking quantum computer before we have it or before we're really ready to face it. Actually, on that note, Arthur, on like atomic bombs and stuff, it seems so if we're talking about nuclear missiles, for instance, countries are stockpiling like it's who has more. But in terms of the atomic bomb, like even if you have one, you can cause massive destruction. So with these quantum computers, is it more like the atomic bomb? If one country just has one, they're already able to obliterate the rest. Or how does that play out? I think that's the worry. And, uh, and the fact is that they can use this as a threat, uh, as at a threat level, um, as well as at a deployment level in ways that are really difficult to understand and engage at this point. Uh, what would cyber warfare waged on a quantum scale really look like? Because of course the key will be to, uh, is, it would be to develop such a large scale quantum computer and not tell anybody because you want to use it stealthily. You want to be able to use it without your antagonist knowing that you're stealing their secrets, that you're emptying out their bank accounts, that you're disrupting uh, their power grid and their financial markets, all of the things that are possible with a large-scale quantum computer attack in the future. But again, this brings us back to the second question, to the first question we started with, uh, Tiffany, and that is, what's the timeline look like? Well, I think a lot of experts think that we shouldn't see 
a development on that scale of a really dangerous quantum computer before 2030, maybe before 2040. We just don't know how fast or how slowly we'll be able to achieve those kinds of timelines. My view is, from a national security point of view, and the reason why I created the Quantum Alliance Initiative in the first place, is that um, we can't afford to gamble that it's going to be a long, slow slog to getting to, the, to a large-scale quantum computer. There's too many ind indications that with one or two major breakthroughs at the conceptual level, at an engineering level, that suddenly the process will take much shorter time than even the experts, that even the experts have wanted to, wanted to predict. And so getting America quantum ready, getting our networks and data quantum safe becomes even more urgent. And Arthur, on that note, it seems right now we are ahead in the quantum race, right? But there is also these other races for AI and other things which rely on a lot of data. And in that aspect, a lot of American companies are actually handing over the data to China and kind of helping them win in those regards. So as you just mentioned, if these two are linked together, then they could basically win. So what kind of steps are in place in the U.S. then to make sure that doesn't happen? Well, the federal government is trying to take steps now to limit the degree to which American companies do hand over their data or provide access to data uh, to uh, Chinese companies, which means ultimately to the Chinese government and to the Chinese military and intelligence services. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we're seeing, we've seen the crackdown on Huawei equipment for that very reason, because it's understood that any kind of data that, that Huawei devices or that uh, Huawei architecture is going to be uh, servicing means that data will be siphoned off and it will be read by, by the Chinese government. Um, it's one of the big concerns about the TikTok. And you know, you and I have been talking about the need for a ban on TikTok. And if you notice now, just in recently, in the last few months now, the clamor is growing for that, that the United States needs to crack down on TikTok because people are beginning to understand what you and I have talked about. And that is, is that TikTok is about much more than simply a social media device uh, that's useful for teenagers who want to stay in touch with their friends. That it is this massive uh, data horde, which TikTok and its parent company can help themselves to and have access to, thanks to the programs. So we're just beginning, I think, I would put it this way, Tiffany, we're just beginning to get our minds around the full impact of having China have access to our data of all kinds. And Arthur, any last words you'd like to add? They see the goal. China, Beijing sees the goal. They see the prize at the end of this. And we do too, but we need to make sure that our efforts to achieve that goal and to protect our data and networks are as comprehensive and as coordinated as China's are. Uh, otherwise, we could be waking up one day, perhaps in 2030, perhaps in 2035, perhaps sooner, to a entirely new world, uh, thanks to thanks to the catastrophic code-breaking power of a large-scale quantum computer. When that day comes, as with the atomic race to the atomic bomb, we'll want to make sure that the first country that achieves that breakthrough 
is going to be us and not and not a communist regime. Arthur, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Always. Always a, always a delight. Thank you. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at ntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow. The 2022 NTD 8th International Chinese Vocal Competition will be held from September 29th to October 2nd at the Merkin Hall of Kaufman Music Center in New York City. The competition is honored to have specially invited vocalists with the world-renowned Shen Yun Performing Arts to serve on its panel of judges. The gold award is $10,000. For more information, please visit vocal.ntdtv.com.